Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is journalist Catherine D. She's an internet culture reporter and an advice columnist at her substack, defaultfriend.substack.com. She also can be found at the Washington Examiner, Tablet, The Spectator, Unheard and many other places. Catherine has an encyclopedic knowledge of the internet, internet culture, now the history of the internet, where it's taking us, the effect that it's having on the whole of our civilization. <laughs> no, that's no exaggeration. She speaks about her theory about how Tumblr is still influ- influencing us uh, culturally and politically, about sissy hypnoporn and the effect that, that has on lonely young men, uh, about the male-to-male transsexual, so-called, and why he's a product of the internet age, and about why Chinese kids aren't allowed on TikTok and why our kids probably shouldn't be either. It was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So, Catherine, I think the first time I ever read you was in maybe 2021, and it was uh, a post on your Substack called um, The Coming Wave of Sex Negativity, which made a massive splash um, in sort of weird corners of the internet and <laughs> and had a huge influence on me. And I actually write about it in the conclusion of um, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution because I think that you're... I think your thesis is right and a lot of people thought that your thesis was right and that's why it was as, as widely shared as it was. Can you tell us about what your what your argument was? Yeah, so um, I basically, so it's it's a trend piece, right? It's a trend prediction. And, um, you know, for like the last, man, it's been probably longer than 10 years, but the last 15 years at least, it's been very in vogue to be sex positive and continuously like pushing the envelope. Um, you know, like Teen Vogue is instructing Uh, 16-year-olds how to, yeah, I I won't, (laughs) I won't even say. Um, (laughs) And I was like, you know, the pendulum's got to swing. This, as millennials get older, this is going to become cringe-inducing. And how are people going to rebel? They're going to go the other way. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not just, it's not just it becoming cringy and sort of, you know, like, um, I think a line I used at some point was like, it's like police at the pride parade, right? Where it's like, it becomes almost too commercialized. Um, I mean, there's also like actual, uh, you know, like knock on effects of the, these kinds of behaviors becoming normalized and sort of like HRIs, right? Oh, the sex bureaucracy. It, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, so people growing up with like older parents, for example, like, how do you know, what's the reaction to that? We'll have kids younger. Um, and, the, you know, there's there's so many different examples of this. And I, I think you actually cover quite a few of them in, in your book. Um, so it's just like, you know what, this is this can't go on. We can't progress forever. At some point, it's going to start rolling, rolling backwards or, that's, you know, that's one way, not necessarily linear, but <laughs> that's one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Although I think that one of the things that you mentioned in the essay, correct me if I'm misremembering, is that this is going to be like an intra-elite phenomenon. It isn't necessarily going to be societal society-wide, it's going to take place in the same social niche in which sex positivity also took hold. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these things like always sort of start in, you know, the media class and the upper classes. The, I think the very confusing thing about the conversation about sex is like, there's how we perceive sex, how it's sort of projected in the mainstream, how it's um, talked about in, in, in media, and then it's what people are actually doing. So um, like OnlyFans is a great example, right? Like, we're all like, you know, we are all, all cool, like cool with OnlyFans, right? Everyone knows someone who does OnlyFans, but like in actual practice, like a lot of guys would not feel comfortable dating an OnlyFans creator or, you mm. know, whatever the, the title is. But that doesn't mean that the culture hasn't sanctioned it. Um, and that's, I think, what people are actually doing beyond sort of that media class or that sort of elite core is much harder to predict, at least for me. Um, and, you know, at least without like stats, um, then the conversation and sort of the trend and the zeitgeist around it. Mm. Do you think it's inherently harder to predict sort of trends outside of the media class? Or do you think it's just that you're more tapped into the media class and you're uh, it's, more perceptive? Yeah, it's, 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 harder for, it's harder for me, right? Like I, I think, um, to, you know, to make more robust predictions, I'd have to be like a sociologist or something, which... Maybe that's the next, <laughs> the next act. 
I, I, it's a question that I get all the time. Is there a sexual counter-revolution coming? To some extent, I think, well, if everyone's talking about it, then it must be. <laughs> like, that's a symptom of it happening, right? That people are constantly announcing it. Um, but then I find it so difficult because obviously, you know, the nature of the internet is that we're all exposed to ever shrinking niches and I don't know how much exposure I really have to sort of mainstream culture I mean it's interesting actually when I I recently went on uh TikTok um briefly and when you go onto TikTok you're initially what they show you is basically one of the most popular videos local to you um so I just got like random British videos that were doing really well that day and it was really striking to me how different it was from the normal internet content that I get served because normally the internet content I get served is stuff that I have somehow chosen or has chosen me in terms of the algorithm or whatever whereas this was blank slate like you are just someone based in London here's what people around you are currently enjoying I found it quite alienating because it was so it was so it wasn't that it like it was bad but it was just that it was so not what I was used to at all and it was quite humbling because it made me think, oh, I actually don't really understand, like, the wider culture at all. I understand my slice of it. You probably um, actually understand it better than you think. I mean, the problem is, like, the speed at which these things move can be, like, very confusing. And, like, the groups that they move. Like, I think we have more of a monoculture than people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, here, here the, to get back to the sexual counter-revolution example, that's actually great. Because just now is the idea of, like the trad wife, so sort of, you know, the, the grift that you and I are familiar is being uh, familiar with is being like almost over, you know, like we've, we've seen it play out in so many different ways on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it feels almost old hat now. Well, it's just hitting everyone else. It's hitting people who are not on Twitter. Um, and mm. you see, you see TikToks of people like critiquing it as though it's just this new trend. So it's, it's can be difficult. There's, so there's two parts of it. It's like, where in the trend cycle is this? Where is all the energy? Usually the energy is where the journalists are, right? Um, and then how does the conversation about the thing, and everything's a conversation about the thing with the internet and mass media, differ from what people are actually doing? Um, and there, it, it can be really, it's, it's mixed. Like they don't always match one another and there's always a lag. So it can be really hard to talk about like the reality um, and I, I think that people take that for granted and they'll say someone, you know, they'll, they'll say like, I'm out of touch. Well, it's like, I'm not out of touch. It's just, I'm talking about one part of the trend cycle, one group, and I'm making predictions on how this group is going to influence everyone, everyone else. Um, and generally it's like pretty, it's pretty right. Um, the sort of area of Twitter that we're in, which is sort of, I think, anchored in like this alternative like media class, which has a symbiotic relationship with legacy media, does actually influence the rest of the culture. It just takes years to see, you know, see the whole, you know, all of the dominoes fall. And then I don't know. It's 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 a it's a weird it's weird to think of interactions in that way, but that's that's the internet. So using the Tradwife example, for those for those viewers and listeners who are not are not familiar with this yet. Can you explain a little bit about sort of its earliest inklings online and then how it's in the process of, of, of migrating to the mainstream? Sure. So um, the idea of like a traditional wife has has been sort of trendy online for, for a while, right? Like you could find people who would use like, you know, hashtag trad wife, like 2013, probably earlier. That's like around the time it got on, got on my radar. That um, early, 2013? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it comes from... You know, all these things start with like the real hobbyists, right? <laughs> People who are really, uh, really into it. Um, so, but at some point, I'd say like probably like 2019 is like when you're really seeing it in like large numbers. Um, it's like women who are sort of showing off this like almost like 1950s inspired, uh, you know, home life, right? And, um, you know, it, it starts, like I said, so it starts with like a ho- the hobbyists, for lack of a better um, word. So like people who are like really living it, like maybe like Christians who are mommy bloggers or, or thing, things like that. And then it sort of becomes like a little bit dissident. And now we're at the point where it's uh, it's sort of like filtered out where like people beyond just like this dissident sphere are using the term, they're reappropriating it. There's people who, you know... It's, it feels strange, even they would use the word, right? Like there's 
trad wife e-girls and really that's just like a shorthand for like I'm getting a little bit older and I, you know I'm cooking for my partner or something <laughs> and so suddenly you're a trad wife right it becomes like a slang term that's lost all its meaning mm. yeah I got in trouble with a friend recently actually for 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 saying that um she was a I, I say made some joke about her being a great trad wife because she was a good cook and she was like I'm just an adult I'm not a trad wife, I'm just an adult. <laughs> He's completely right. Point, right? Like, yeah. you, like, these things, like, end up as in some sort of, like, identity silo, when mm. really it's, like, not not really that extraordinary that someone's, like, cooking a meal for themselves or their friends. <laughs> but it's just everything. We're so used to everything being, like, content or something or, like, being indicative of, like, oh, I do this, so I'm I'm this, you know? <laughs> do you think that the coming wave of sex negativity is going to um, come for OnlyFans? sooner rather than later I mean it depends on what you mean by you know come for right um I think we're we're probably already at a point where um people are less inclined to start OnlyFans like I, there was definitely a period there like I had a I had a, I had a professor friend I can't even get it out because it's so crazy I had a professor friend who was like this close to starting an OnlyFans because she was like I need some extra money but you know the problem with OnlyFans is not only sort of the invasion of privacy that people sort of realize, like, obviously it is, but you don't, you know, you don't realize it in the moment. Um, you don't really make that much money from it. Um, and you see people who are in, like, the top whatever percent, um, and you realize, like, I'm never going to be there. Um, you have to come in with a following. Um, so I think between that and then sort of people realizing, like, I'm making maybe $50 a month and everyone can see, like, the cellulite on my body. <laughs> It's a. Uh, it might wane in popularity. Um, I I can sort of foresee um, it either. So OnlyFans had been around for a while. Um, I remember like seeing it in uh, like the late 2010s. Um, I used to be friends with a lot of strippers. Very weird thing, but they all had OnlyFans. <laughs> so I could see it either going back to the the the, the sex worker only niche or. Um, become somehow changing and being more like Patreon and like, you know, more like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a, a, co- a non-nude cosplayer or something, or like podcaster. I'm a podcaster with only podcaster fans. Transition to but fans it's... Be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, clearly the platform is very well designed. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, did it reach saturation point quite quickly? Because it was sort of pandemic-ish time that it suddenly became really famous and then I guess you had this huge influx and then obviously you drive down the price when you have this fast availability right and I mean it, there's like a lot of guerrilla marketing for it I feel yes like did you notice how all the girls saying you know I made it big on OnlyFans they all had like uncannily similar houses that they were promoting I, d- I didn't um but that's a good that's sort of a good point. I mean, there is all these rumors that circulated on, on TikTok that it was a pyramid scheme, right? Because you'd see these, like, you know, pretty 17-year-olds who are showing you how they, uh, like, you know, make poke bowls in their mom's kitchen or whatever. And then, like, in the comments, it'd be like, oh, you're 18 next month. Have you considered joining OnlyFans with my, you know, my code? Um and I think a lot of people made money that way by mm. recruiting people because they didn't necessarily have the following. Like women recruiting other um, women. I mean, I do think... Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know if I don't I don't know what the site's future is, but I do think we did see a period for a long time where we sort of it started off as sort of edgy to you know dabble in, in sex work, right? So like sugaring, so sugar babies, um, camming, then um, you know like on my free cams, and then um, escorting, even OnlyFans, um, and then it went from edgy to. Uh, you know, destigmatized to suddenly everyone's fighting for like sex workers' rights, and now I feel like we're going to be like, eh, you know, it's it's not that great. Maybe we shouldn't. And sort of the the undercurrent that it's sort of always been there of like, I'm going to pass judgment on you is going to be a little bit less veiled. Um, there's going to be a little bit more open judgment um, to people who make that choice, and it'll be more of a marginalized position. Um, and I, I think a lot of that also is from. Uh, you know, sex workers themselves who are kind of sick, who are survival sex workers, and they, this is their only option for whatever reason. And they're like, this isn't a trend. It sucks. I wish I didn't have to do this, or I wish I didn't start doing this and I could transition to something else. Um, I've, I see like a lot of, like some of the loudest voices uh, on the like, let's reconsider how we're talking about this are people in the sex industry. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what proportion of, of women on OnlyFans are actually there for survival sex work reasons, but I would Probably very few. Yeah, yeah, I would guess so. Um, but then who knows? I mean, as you say, the whole platform is incredibly mysterious, possibly by design. Um, yeah. Because it kind of... I guess it makes money from just creating a huge amount of content. It's something I've heard about um, porn in general, that it it functions a bit differently from other kinds of uh, products in, in terms of supply and demand. So, like, the principle behind the Nordic model, for instance, when it, when it comes to the sex industry, is that um, when uh, buying sex is decriminalised or legalised, you have more men who go around buying sex because the, the, the risks to them are lower, and so you have to meet that demand with supply and you will end up with more trafficking because there aren't enough women generally who are willing to do it. So you have to coerce some women. And so the inevitable consequence of decrim or legalisation is more um, women forced into it. I've heard that with porn, it doesn't necessarily actually work that way because because obviously like um, video can be endlessly reproduced in a way that a real person can't be multiplied artificially. What what a lot of porn platforms seem to do is just like completely flood the market with enormous amount of content, including, for instance, videos which are actually the same video but with different titles to appeal to different tastes, different markets. And like it presents consumers with this like astonishing cornucopia of choice. Um, I guess, well, OnlyFans... It, you know, it does rely on like real women <laughs> to be offering the offering the content. It's like the personalised content, right? Which is how it's different from porn. Um, but yeah, I guess part of the, the the way in which some of these online marketplaces operate is quite strange and doesn't necessarily conform to normal laws around economics in the real world. Yeah, I mean, the other thing with OnlyFans that we you know shouldn't. Uh, take for granted is like there's sort of a girlfriend experience element to it um probably more than just the photos or the videos or whatever it's the messaging mm. part of the platform too um and that's i mean that's why a lot of people aren't successful um because you know it's it's if you don't have a following if you don't have a if you don't have a personality like it's it's to me um it the people who are very successful are like celebrities or people like um ayla who for listeners who don't know who she is, she's um, she came out of the Bay Area rationalist scene, and she was sort of like a you know a Bay Area character that if you were in a certain milieu in California, you knew who she was. Where she's like sort of nerdy and like intellectual and, and quirky, and she's like half data scientist, half prostitute, sort of like that. Her own, I think she calls herself like a whore lord or something. Um, but it's like it's is she producing the most eccentric or? the most innovative or even the highest quality content. No, but she's a character who's part of a scene and that scene ha you know, has a certain number of people. So it creates demand in, in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so people would purchase her wares for the same reason you might uh, Bella Thorne, who was a, a young actress who I think like pulled off some crazy OnlyFans scam. <laughs> she was like, she told everyone she was gonna be on OnlyFans and then like, um, create a lot of anticipation and a bunch of people signed up and then, she, then it was just like one photo or something that wasn't pornographic and <laughs> everyone got very upset. Yeah, I think she promised more explicit voters and she actually delivered and they all got very across. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I did a debate with Ayla um, on uh, Unheard uh, about six months ago sometime last year and she might have said on that debate or maybe somewhere else that... Um, her period of earning a lot of money on OnlyFans was quite brief and got quite a lot of media attention um, because she kind of set herself the goal that she was going to try and maximise her earnings on OnlyFans and she like worked really hard at it for a short period of time and it proved not to be sustainable. And a massive part of what she was doing to increase this, this engagement and, and her income was doing all the girlfriend experience stuff, like lots and lots of back and forth comments with... Uh, customers. I mean, of course, the really successful OnlyFans creators are not actually replying to any of this themselves, right? They have like an assistant, yeah, <laughs> like some bloke in the Philippines who's re who's replying to to messages. So it's all it's all completely fake. But 
I mean, I think that's part of why, you know, people say, Are AI, is AI going to displace, like, you know, OnlyFans creators or porn stars? And, like, may, you know, maybe sometimes, right? I mean, certainly with porn, I can see that happening. But something like OnlyFans, there's this, like, glimmer of hope, you know, like, maybe the stripper likes me, right? You know, it's like, you can't have that with AI. Um, you know, there's that famous story of people sort of projecting onto Eliza, which was the, uh, it was like... A, sort of a proto-AI therapist in the late 60s or 70s, I think. Um, but I think, you know, like once you're getting into something as complex as, like, conversations with creators, even if you know in your heart of hearts nothing's going to happen, it's that, like, 0.1% chance that, like, you're going to get to take the e-girl home <laughs> that keeps that keeps it going. And clearly with an ALA situation, I mean, that was the revenue driver. Mm. Mm. And then sometimes you do. Sometimes the, sometimes the only fans girl does marry you or something. That you, does we've that heard of that happening. I've never heard of yeah, that. Yeah, like I've I've heard like I don't know maybe a handful of stories. Non-zero. You know, TV times. talks back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, to my knowledge, I've never actually met an OnlyFans like customer, but presumably there must be many, many more of them than there are creators in order to, you know. They lurk among us. I guess they must do, yeah. <laughs> Unless maybe they subscribe to loads of different... I mean, this is the thing. We say, I mean, it's also true of the sex industry in general. We talk. We generally talk so much less about the johns and talk so much more about the sellers of various kinds. Um, that classic thing of a like any kind of news story about prostitution, it will be a photo of a woman's legs in high heels yeah. and, and fishnets and rides, never a photo of, like the hideous paunch of the male, <laughs> the male sex buyers. And the same is true of OnlyFans. We just almost never hear anything about them. Um, right, like the other side of the coin with like, you know, lonely men are being exploited. It's like not only are lonely men being exploited, but like they really are being conditioned to view women as objects, even through these girlfriend experiences, because it's like, and I think Ayla said this her, herself, something to the effect of like you sag a little bit, and they move on to the next girl, and they might have these overly romantic uh, you know, feelings and might say these things that feel very emotional, but they're learning how to like show their appreciation for an object through language that we associate with love, right? So the woman becomes disposable anyway, even if it's through this language of like loneliness, isolation, and, and romance. So it's kind of like a double edged sword of, of horror. One of the things that you do on your Substack is offer an, uh, offer a, an advice column. <laughs> Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> um, is this something that's ever come up in, in letters that you get, this, that, like, fixation on on e-girls of various kinds? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, we we, we uh, have a big audience of um, sensitive young men who, who, who love the online women. And what is your... is? Am I right in thinking your advice is going to be log off? Um, I mean, not always, right? I think that you can make... I'm never. I'm not going to tell any of these guys. You know, the the OnlyFans creator secretly likes you. That's not right. <laughs> my uh, my co-writer would probably say log off and go see a prostitute. And I and my advice, a little bit more measured, is like, don't you know, stay away from the porn. But why don't you like DM a girl from Twitter or something and see if you could take her out in person. <laughs> Best of both worlds. <laughs> Twitter girls are slightly less Android than OnlyFans right, girls. Right. Slightly... Yeah. I mean, I personally think that the strongest argument for porn and, um, you know, by association, OnlyFans and various, like, iterations of it is not the sexual liberation argument, is not the, like, infinite choice sort of freedom argument at all. It's that if there is some portion of men who really cannot get laid otherwise and who might otherwise be sexually aggressive, that porn might have a kind of stupefying diversionary effect on them. Um, it's really hard to work out empirically whether or not that's actually true. Um, and my suspicion as well is that there probably are quite a lot of men who are somewhere in between and actually in different circumstances with different incentives they could have real relationships with real women which would be more satisfying. But instead of choosing the android women and that that's bad for them but you know maybe it is true that like there are some portion of men who should be kind of 
it's better if they're plugged into the virtual reality sex ecosystem? I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, for, you know, there's a lot of men who live in, like, weird small towns where there's just, like, not a lot of women or, you know, like, things like that or, like, um, they, they're in lines of work where they can't really meet women or have relationships. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't know what porn's impact on people like that is. But the people I really think of are, like, those who are, like, severely disabled where mm. it, you know, really there aren't, there, there is no way out. There's no waiting period. Um, I also, th- you know, I also am of the opinion that um, maybe porn's not so bad if it stays uh, like an, it stays a niche, right? Like you have to physically go to the store, you have to buy a physical item, uh, you know, your ID for that item. And there's, there's more like regulation around it. I think it being so easy to, to access it, you know, and there's an explosion of different, different options. I mean, that's, that's a huge part of the problem too, because you can sedate yourself with it very easily. And, you know, it's not just men who look at porn, also women look at porn and has a whole host of effects on, on women as, as well. Um, but having like a little bit of shame, like you have to drive to the adult bookstore or whatever to pick up a magazine probably is a lot healthier than like, you know, pulling up an incognito tab on your phone and sort of like hunching over your desk or whatever. This has been um, under discussion in the UK um, around age verification that maybe what we should be doing is you have to go to a newsagent and buy a little like porn token, which has a barcode or something like that. And then you go home and you can use it to access sites. So it's 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 still the online product, but it's one, allowing newsagents to do age verification and two, injecting like a little bit of shame and maybe just a little bit of a hurdle that I, I would be astonished, for instance, if like 99% of women would not do that. In order right. to access porn. Like, you'd have to really want it. I mean, I think for, I think for anything that, um, you know, there's a chance of you overdoing it, it's just good to like put in some extra steps. Like you don't have to limit access, but like you're going to binge eat, right? You have to go to the store, buy the food and think about it. Um, I'm sure like Uber Eats has like, you know, radically changed the way people are consuming food, right? Anytime something's too easy, it's that's when the problems start to come up. Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R.ai. In terms as well of the amazing variety of porn available, the fact now that even, I guess in like 20 years, you've suddenly had this explosion in, in options available that was never available in Playboy or whatever, right? But now every fetish you can possibly imagine and some that you can't are available on the internet. Um, I see this unambiguously as being a bad thing. I mean, I guess that the the, the more sex positive view of it would be that it, it's good to provide stimulation for people who have weird interests. There's nothing wrong with having weird interests as long as they don't hurt anyone. Um, but then my suspicion is that actually the internet is creating these interesting people who wouldn't otherwise, yeah. 
Um, I, I mean, and, you know, it's long term, it's bad for the people with the weird interests, right? Because the floodgates open and it dilutes the product. And also there's always a sense of community, especially on like the early internet or on some of these more fringe things. And as they become more commercialized or the again, like diluted, it's bad for the people who like really they're on the fringes and maybe they, they belong there, right? Um, but yeah, definitely with you on the internet creating some of these interests, um, because you're, you're novelty seeking at a certain point, like you're gamifying getting off um, and, you know, the, the the vanilla stuff becomes old and then you move on to like BDSM and get, that gets old. And then it's like, well, what if, I don't know, whatever the, ne <laughs> the next thing is, right, then that gets old. Um, so it's kind of hurting people from a bunch of different angles. Um, with like Sissy Hypno, right? Speaking of things, that's that's something I've talked. I've, I've interviewed a, a, a few people about their interest in that. So it's being hypnotized, uh, men being hypnotized into feminizing themselves and bimbifying themselves. And Can you they, explain what bimbifying is for um, since my mom so who sort will be of listening to this. <laughs> sure. So like dumbing yourself down and uh, also adopting this like hyper feminine um, sort of stance. Um, I know this is a very loaded term, but I actually think it's really good in this specific situation, uh, like putting on woman face. Um, that's like one way to describe it. You know, a lot of the men who I've spoken to have said things like, I don't think I would have ever been interested in this if I hadn't found it online. And that's one case where it's like, I don't know how many men would say that, but the men I've spoken to have all sort of said like, this was a product of um, looking at high volumes of porn and sort of reaching a point where I feel like I was conditioned to like this for whatever reason. Like either they just, uh, you know, there was sort of a game-like aspect to it because you're being like hypnotized, right? And going back over and over again, or like nothing else was interesting and this was more interactive or participatory, um, or, you know, just re you know reaching a point for whatever reason, this is what, this is just how their mind bent and warped under the weight of all the content that they had seen. Am I right that Sissy Hypno is audio? I've never, I've never consumed. I've only read about it. Um, uh, it's it's audio and video. Sometimes okay. it's just there's podcasts and audiobooks, but there's there's videos. Um, there's like websites you can like click through. It comes in different formats. And it does basically seem to be like perfectly engineered to induce something like gender dysphoria in men who consume it. Yeah, I mean that's sort of the that's sort of the point. The point, do you think, from people who producer yeah or people who seek it I, out. I mean i guess you know it, it's 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 supposed it, i don't you know i don't want to foreclose on the the possibility either that people who are already experiencing gender dysphoria are attracted to it because they're it, it's sort of like a safe space yeah to you know experience and work through those feelings right i've, I've heard that before and i don't want to say that that's not not, not possible but i do think that like you, it's pretty easy to, to sigh up yourself into anything. I mean, here's an analogy. Like, you know, a lot of women don't necessarily have issues with their weight until they're looking at images of very thin women over and over and over again, especially along, you know, like if you're on, if you're like a average sized woman, you go on Tumblr and suddenly you're being fire hosed with like thigh gaps and like, um, you know, sh should I have one bite of a croissant today after my cigarette? Like, you see that once, whatever, you see that 40,000 times and suddenly maybe <laughs> you start thinking pretty similar. It's, the internet's very good at conditioning uh, people's thoughts. Mm. And kind of, yes, and generally not when there's nothing there to begin with, right? So like most of us are not interested in seeking out sissy hypno and therefore probably if we did so, it would not have much of an effect on us. But if there's a seed of something, there's a seed of an eating disorder for instance then say pro-anocytes which now seem very retro I presume still exist in some fashion so like pro-anorexia material sharing lots of thin photos and and weight updates and all this kind of stuff presumably that's migrated from tumblr to to different different platforms it's on twitter it's on tiktok it's still on it's still on tumblr I mean it it that's sort of a whole other <laughs> tangent but I mean definitely there's the, the pro-Anna sites of yesteryear where people are, are sharing, what was it, like the 246 diet, which is like 200 calories one day, 400, 600, fast, repeat, right? Like different things like that. That seems very done. 
but the 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 edits of thigh gaps and like you know mood boards of just like a lith hand and a single cigarette that's i mean all over all over the internet <laughs> the lana del rey coquette <laughs> i want to talk more about tumblr but before we get away from bimbification i wanted to talk about um a term that you came up with which i have have, have written about as well elsewhere the male-to-male transsexual and the counter example the female-to-female transsexual can you explain what you mean by those exquisite terms so this this term has come up independently several times um it, the the first I found this out the the first person who coined this was a French artist named Orlan I think, um, and then I think someone in the manosphere used male to male transsexual, um, but and I think we all mean the same thing actually, which is basically someone who is uh, I mean basically like hamming up right their gender presentation so they're not um, they're 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 basically like drag queens right. So the, for a woman, it would be like, you know, the fillers, the uh, extensions, this uh, this display of femininity that is, it, it's it's camp, right? Like it can only, it's, it's, it's the theatrical version of femininity, um, which I think in a weird way, like actually distances the, the woman from womanhood because it's so much of a costume. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the reverse would be true of men. Right. It's such a display of masculinity that it is almost like anti-masculine. Right. It's something it's something else. It's it's uh, it's again, it's drag. Right. I wonder how much this interacts with economic status signaling as well, because I think it's not a coincidence that the women on whom you often see kind of obvious lip fillers like the duck lip kind of effect are often women who are kind of middle income. So they can they can afford the £300 a year or twice a year or whatever it is that fillers cost, but that's quite a lot of money for them to be spending. Whereas for very rich women, £300 once every six months is trivial money. So they're not interested in like displaying to other people the fact that they get lip fillers. Whereas if lip fillers are like a genuine status symbol in your peer group, you're going to want to make it look obvious that you've had lip fillers, right? To, to what extent do you think that's playing into the kind of um, male-to-male and female-to-female transsexual? Is there like an economic status intersecting with all of it? Um, I, I mean, I think in both cases it's about insecurity, right? Because you definitely see, I mean, um, you know, like I'm from Palm Beach, right? And there's a lot of wealth there. And you definitely see the duck lips, right? Um, but they might not be insecure about their money, but they're insecure about mm. their age, and they're insecure about their age because their husband mm-hmm. might discard them, right? So I think it's and the same, you know, the same is true with these sort of performances of gender. Um, if you're insecure about who you are and uh, you know where you have power for whatever reason, you're more likely to have these these types of display displays. Um, the you know the man who isn't uh, secure in his masculinity will be overly masculine. Um, the usually when you see these sort of like, you know, like the female to female transsexual, right? They're women who um, feel like they're not enough on their own. So they a a more moderate or like tempered display of femininity. They may not feel beautiful. So it's almost like you know like an fu. Like I'm going to lean all the way in and make it camp because then and it's almost like choosing ugliness in a weird way. Like it's um you know it, it's they can't, they can't do it like correctly or they can't do it with temperance so they have to do it so big that it becomes it's sort of its own type of expression um and i, I mean i think for so many things that's that's really the 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 root the root catalyst interesting all right i want to talk about tumblr because i know that you see tumblr at the root of a huge amount of what ails us as a civilization <laughs> first of all explain what tumblr yes. is for people who don't know or can't remember um tumblr was a microblogging site um so it wasn't just des- it wasn't like a live journal or a blogger where people were writing like four thousand word tomes about their day they were writing like i mean it still exists but uh you know at its peak it was like three or four sentences if you're writing something um there was, it was very image heavy um it had sort of like a feed like you would have on um, Twitter, where you know everyone's posts, would, you would see it in one, you know, in, in one stream. 
Um, and it was very big with fandom. So if you really, if you wrote fan fiction, if you role played, if you drew fan art, um, and if you're really into like a certain media property, you were probably on Tumblr. Um, and it, it it started in 2007, if I'm remembering correctly. It peaked 2011, 2012. So is it, sorry, is that slightly um, predating Twitter? Yeah, I think Twitter was 2009, um, and tw- tw- Twitter didn't didn't really get big until a little bit later. Um, but Twitter uh, Twitter had different audiences, right? Um, in 2013, I think Tumblr was the number one site for. Um, like the 13 to 18 year old age bracket. Um, so it was really for teenagers. Um, you know, 2014 things start to t- taper off, but then you have sort of a second wave of like of Tumblr popularity, 2014 to 2017. At some point, um, they banned porn. Um, I think they banned porn. I remember. I think I lived in Boston when they banned porn. So it might have been 2015, and that's that's when the demographics started to change and that you know it got acquired. Um, and the, the website started to change, and now it's sort of, there's ruins. People still use it, but it's not the popular place it was in the early 2010s. And why do you think that uh, Tumblr has such explanatory power in, in looking at the place the culture's in right now? So a lot of what we would call, like, wokeness, right, um, it wasn't created on Tumblr, but it, it was sort of, like, um, sort of, like, germinated, on Tumblr is introduced to a lot of young people. Um, you know, so the working theory as like wokeness went more mainstream was like, oh, you know, like we sent we sent our kids to those colleges and they came back, you know, with their brains fried. But um, you know, I interviewed like hundreds of people, and you know, for things like um, uh, privilege or um, you know ge- different terms around gender identity, they learned it from Tumblr, um, and. I think that very online teenagers brought these ideas um, to their university classrooms. And the, and between that and journalists scraping Tumblr for content, like, you know, BuzzFeed journalists, sort of like lower tier, back when, you know, people were, freelance writers were um, trying to, uh, you know, create clickbait and it was like $50 a pop or whatever. Um, that's sort of how we had this explosion of wokeness. That was the, that was the lab leak. Um, again, not that these teenagers invented it. I know a lot of these things come from academia, um, but they come from like grad school and sort of like the outer reaches of activism and things that your average per like they had stayed contained for as long as they stayed contained for a reason, right? Um, but what popularized them and what what you know catalyzed the spread was was Tumblr. Was you know the 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 people on the fringes of academia or activism or leftism or, or whatever posting to Tumblr and teenagers taking that and and going wild and um, the the vehicle of, of transmission like how these two groups met each other I suspect was was fandom so Harry Potter Supernatural Doctor Who you know those ner- adult nerds love that stuff but so do kids <laughs> um. Do you think there's something about wokeness which is particularly appealing to that kind of Tumblr ecosystem? It, it encourages, I guess, quite a lot of classification. I, I dimly remember, I didn't really use Tumblr, though I'm roughly that age group, there being a lot of people kind of listing all their different privileges and, and oppressions and whatever, and, and, and the kind of almost like a listicle per person, which maybe is quite well suited to the microblogging. Is there something else as well about wokeness, do you think, that flourishes in that environment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of people who feel, you know, they they feel invisible. This feels so cliche to say, but like they feel invisible in their day to day lives. I mean, it's the same. It's the same reason why like a fourteen year old would would be a mall goth or, um, you know, would affect an eating disorder or maybe even like self harm. And all of these things have gone through cycles of popularity. Um, and sometimes, right? You know, sometimes your fourteen-year-old really does have an eating disorder, or really is self-harming. But a lot of the time, they just—it's just a way to sort of express their angst and their feelings of not being seen or like not having an explanation for like much more ordinary um, pain, right? Like it, somehow it gives them more purpose. Um, I mean, the problem is when you know I think we it, this is time immemorial. This is that's just the age group. But the problem is when you legitimize it too much, right? You don't want to silence these kids, but if you legitimize it too much, they never get to grow out of it. 
I mean, eventually we all realize we're not the most special person in the world with the most special problems, and we, we mature. Uh, Tumblr sort of is like this, creates this feedback loop where you never you never break out of those those chains. Does it not as well, though, lead to a lot of self-flagellation, the work stuff? You know, if you're like a, a cis white girl, um, you might choose to, or boy, even worse, you might choose to identify as trans as a way of like you know climbing the hierarchy but if you can't or won't for whatever reason you have to do a lot of um sort of public um like bowing before the hierarchical system and so on and i i wonder if this is one of the things that's contributing to the famed mental health crisis among young women that everywhere they go they're having to sort of debase themselves before this political ideology which maybe serves their their self-esteem interests sometimes but very often doesn't yeah i mean I, that's that's definitely true i mean i don't i don't know if that's necessarily at the root of the the mental health no, crisis though. i think it might be um, it feel, one factor like, among many yeah yeah, yeah if, that feels like more of like an adult phenomenon um but if you think of something you know if you like I just watched, like I rewatched Mean Girls the other night, right? And if you think of like the hierarchies in that film, that, that there's something to, there's something to it. Like there's the people who are you know identifying as the most special, and then there's the there's sort of the the people who are the supporting characters, um, and that's that's definitely like one way to be like a supporting character is to self-flagellate. But it's of course that's its own sort of expression of angst if you if you, especially if you overdo mm. it. And so these are kids who I guess now are in their mid-twenties to mid-thirties, perhaps. And they're, yeah. and they're now yeah. reaching the point where they are um, having some influence in their professions, potentially. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the, one, the one part of this, though, um, that I think is, has been very underrated is so like not only do these kids never grow out of it, and for a lot of people, it becomes sort of central to their, the way they navigate the world. But also, so this was during a time when, like, again, like, digital publications were cutting back and, like, journalism became less of a craft. So you had people who needed to produce these articles, um, high volume, needed to be clickbait, and they needed to do it quickly, and they weren't really edited. So they would go to Reddit, um, and they would go to Tumblr, and they would basically, like, be like these content hounds, you know, just like sniffing f for things. They go through yeah. Wikipedia. Down the content right? So it's like, yeah, right? So like what subculture can I write about today that's like super wacky? Or, you know, like what what new identity can I write about? Um, and for a while that was really, um, that you know, that, that people were curious. I mean, I remember myself, I would like go through Wikipedia and I'd be like, all right, what has no one written about yet like what is what's sufficiently weird that i can <laughs> you know i could spin into 800 words um and i think that you know that legitimated a lot of these ideas that may have um you know only belonged in these like small conversations on tumblr um and there's it, there's people are starting to um go back and like sort of like retroactively like document this um but like, if you look up the origins of um, Latinx, for example, right, and you, you, it takes it takes a while to find all the sources. When it first got introduced in the main, mainstream, it was being introduced as this this label came out of the blogosphere, right? You know, this is where it comes from. Someone in you know first seen in a blog, then seen in an obscure academic journal, and then suddenly it's like showing up in. Uh, you know these like clickbait articles, right? In between that is is Tumblr. So, it, so in that instance, you think it went Tumblr then academia rather than the other way around? Um, yeah, I think I, I think well, I think it was in in a in a blog, right? Like not necessarily Tumblr. I think it was in a blog. Someone who's probably an academic. Then some. Then you know the term was being used. People liked it. It, it ends up in an academic journal. Um, you know, probably someone who is like, you know, looking up identity stuff or whatever, like, you know, identity was sort of like a hobby interest of theirs, ends up on Tumblr. And then it's, and then it sort of spreads and becomes like a part of online speech. And then suddenly, you know, it's, everyone's using it. Oh, it must be right. It sounds right. It sounds what, like what people want. 
Um, and it, you know, it ends up being written about and legitimized. And initially it's very cool. And then, of course, like once everyone's nan right, is saying no. Latinx, it's not cool anymore. And you have to move on to something else. That's, yeah, right. the nature of subcultures. Um, uh, I can't remember um, who wrote this theory, so I can't, I can't credit them. But you may have come across this idea that um, the reason why you see these sudden watershed moments in the culture, um, 2020 being the sort of the crucial one for wokeness, uh, you know, is not just because of the events of 2020, the, the, the George Floyd's death. It's because it's when you reached a certain um, crucial saturation point of a, of a particular generation coming into positions of greater seniority. So something like, uh, you know, the New York Times, for example, is dominated at the, at the very top by liberal boomers, but you have this huge number of much more junior members of staff in their 20s and early 30s maybe, who have who are who are Tumblr kids who've come of age in this period and have imbibed this belief system. But they don't really have that much influence over the publication because they're too junior. But when they reach the point where some of them start getting promoted and they're like enough of them in the organisation and that they have real power and they can actually exert influence over their bosses, suddenly it appears as if this like ideology has appeared out of nowhere. It hasn't appeared out of nowhere. It's just that the generation who hold to it have suddenly reached an age where they can uh, they can they can let it play out in real life, and that's probably what we're seeing right now. Right, that Tumblr is not new; these ideas are not new, but they suddenly are being espoused by people who actually have power in the world. Yeah, I I, I mean I absolutely agree. Um, and I, you know, we're I, the younger generations now are sort of are questioning it, um, and I think like we're going to be, you know, once again blindsided. If you look at like what teenagers are are talking about, I feel like there's a lot of um, self, like measured self criticism. <laughs> a lot of these ideas, like people aren't necessarily abandoning it, um, but like um, a lot of like, hmm, maybe we we went too far, you know, like not full, not full, like uh. Yeah, dissidents, but def- definitely like, nope. This 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 made my middle school years hell, and I'm uh, I'm reconsidering now. What do you think is going to be the next the the next thing? What is you know you 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 hear about Gen Z being surprisingly right wing, for instance? Do you think that's true, or just for the boys? I think I think some of them are. I think that there's a portion of them. I think the mainstream, though, is going to be this sort of, um, it, you know, there's still sort of like left leaning, but um, again, like they're they're checking that the excesses, right? And if you listen to popular podcasts or, or popular Substackers, or if you you know you look at if you look at like the Gen Z response to someone like Dylan Mulvaney, mm-hmm. for example, they're Sorry, not going to say Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney, Mulvaney is for people who don't know. Sure, Dylan Mul Dylan Mulvaney. Um, was a trans woman who um, started uh, tracking. Uh, she she came into uh, po- you know pop- popularity by saying day one of girlhood, right? It was a viral TikTok, and she got all these like brand brand deals, and um, you know like it just blew up, right? And has become like a minor celebrity. and has a kind of Audrey Hepburn, um, um, yeah, sort of look, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, she's very gauche, right? She, she's full of faux pas and not in like a, not in a cute way, in a way that's actually like pretty obnoxious, right? Now, a millennial might've been like, well, don't, don't misgender her. Don't, you know, trans women are women. She's so sweet, (laughs) you know, just defending, but without seeing the nuance of the, this is a full person who happens to be trans. Millennials, um, granted this, uh, grace, if you will, to Caitlyn Jenner, who everyone hates for uh, being a Republican, but um, right. But I'd, I'd, I've noticed, like a Zoomer would say, "Well, you know, f that." Uh, Dylan Mulvaney is really annoying and is self-centered, and I don't care that uh, she's trans. You know, don't you? Know, you don't have to attack her on that basis, but like also like, why don't we not make a mockery of womanhood? And there's this, and the the criticisms 
are not um, like it's not like a, a return to like a, a you know a more traditional notion of gender necessarily, um, but it is sort of like we don't need like we don't need to support this person um, just because of their identity status. And there's all these other criticisms I've noticed that have become popular without necessarily being politicized. Like, for example, with gender reassignment surgery, you know, it's like, actually, this is really dangerous and maybe we shouldn't uh, be like pushing it with reckless abandon and people are uh, like ruining their ability to experience um, orgasm. And, you know, there's all these like health issues. And I, I, I think that's sort of going to be the mainstream position. Like we went way too far this like uncritical acceptance of these things was a huge mistake. We don't have to tell trans women they aren't women, but we also like don't have to just be like anything goes yourself and you know what you self announce is 100% correct. And I think that's going to be sort of you're going to have this counterculture of rebellion, right? But the more uh, the more mainstream fare will be will be this and there will be certain uh, qualities adopted that's you know seem maybe more more trad like a suspicion of like hormonal birth control um i think just in general what i'd uh, say characterizes is like uh not accepting things without mm. question right more more critical thought which is sort of trending you know it, we've sort of been going in this direction in our own weird way <laughs> for a while so how do you think the the coming sex negativity is going to slot into this? Is it going to be mainstream or is it going to be a kind of strong countercultural thread? I think it'll be both. Um, I think there is a way in which it can be like interpolated into the mainstream. Um, so like the hormonal, like questioning hormonal birth control, um, being, you know, being more prudent about your choices. Um, like, again, like this air of like mm -hmm. criticism and critical thinking and then the counterculture i think there will there will be like a i mean there already is right a strong sort of like uh like more a more open uh rebellion against against it like the the, the mainstream iteration wouldn't um be quite as like judgmental or quite a or have quite as much of a conservative veneer um you know i i think like it in it, I don't think it's going to be long until we circle all the way back and the counterculture is really just like we're back to where we were when you and I were younger. <laughs> where being like uh, sexually eccentric has regained its, uh, its coolness. Oh, yeah, it's been on a sixpence within like a decade. I mean, I guess it is kind of the nature of the internet that you end up with enormously speeded up um, fashions, which also are global in a way that they never would have been historically. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was reading recently that one of the um, strange things about early 19th century fashion is that there weren't very many people who lived in London. So if you were one of those people and you're fashionable and you're going into, you know, Piccadilly and walking down Burlington Arcade or whatever, you're very likely to literally see Beau Brummel like regularly, you know, the most uh, like... The, one of the biggest celebrities in London because there just aren't that many Londoners. <laughs> so like your chances of crossing paths is, uh, is quite high. And that's the way that people transmit fashion by actually seeing other people wearing these things. And then it kind of slowly um, moves out to the provinces and, and so on. Whereas now it happens at the speed of light on TikTok. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so quick. Um... I mean, not not every not everything is quick, but I, especially tr like um, like more like material trends, right? Like food trends, um, fashion fashion trends. That can, the this music that like, that moves very 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 quickly. Um, although I will say sometimes I I question if it's quite as quick as it feels um, because there's been like a few things I've been, I've sort of like you know, bookmarked that I've noticed, I've seen like explode sort of over like a period of years, right? Um, like one really weird example of this was when I first, when I first like really started using TikTok in 2019, it was a trend to wrap pickles in fruit roll-ups and covered in chamoy, which is like a, a weird kind of sauce. Um, I don't know if it's the, in the UK. Um, and then tahine, which is sort of like a spice, a, a spicy seasoning, freeze it and eat it. That is not cross-Atlantic, um, to my knowledge, and, and I think that's for the best. 
Yeah, really, yeah. really weird, right? And so it, you know, we're now 2023. So, okay, so people start trying, everyone starts, does videos trying it, okay? It doesn't quite die. Suddenly, small businesses are selling these pickles and, and different flavors, right? It's not just the fruit roll-ups and the chamoy. There's different iterations. Maybe we wrap it in cotton candy, right? And people are people are buying from these these small businesses. And then suddenly, it's like in San Antonio, there's like a pickle shop where you could go customize your own pickles. And it's, you know, that now we're in 2023. So like that whole... I, I could be wrong, right? I, I haven't, like, extensively researched this pickle trend. But, like, that whole, like, life cycle of these pickles has, like, you know, taken us through several years. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get to the point where it's, like, you know, on the Today Show or The View or something. They're like, oh, have you heard about these pickles that, like, everyone's trying on? You know, it's, like, a Bon Appetit recipe or something, right? And that's actually, like, a pretty long time for something to to develop before it's like you know it's like frozen yogurt and it's like we all we all ate it and now it's like who cares what the hell is that (laughs) so what's the kind of time span do you think that we're seeing from something emerging first among the coolest kids on tiktok until like everyone's parents have heard of it i don't know i haven't been i i like i i haven't seen the end of the lifespan of like these pickles (laughs) It could it could be a decade. <laughs> in, in terms of other things as well, though, I mean, is there like a? Are we talking years? Would you say actually, rather than yeah? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely years. I mean, there's certain things that seem the turnover seems very quick, um, especially with mm-hmm. fashion, which is you know you also see um, analyzing micro trends is itself a trend, a very um, lucrative trend if you work in and, fashion business. Yeah, right. And I think that's sort of a response to like the turnover is so quick for certain things. But there's other things that have more um, that have more longevity. Like the way we consume music is totally different. Um, we're definitely like in a curatorial phase with music, and by that I mean like things get sort of like pulled from the archive and repopularized for a short period of time and then go dormant again. Um, but you know, like what we wear, how we wear makeup, these these things seem very very quick. Um, but what we eat, um, also very influenced by the internet, that seems, I mean, this is true in other parts of the internet too. Like look at, um, you know, like the carnivore diet is something that has had many lives. Um, keto has had many lives, uh, you know, like people getting into raw milk or like diets that are, um, more hormone conscious, like there's Ray Pete. Uh, there's, you know, it, it, there's, they, and it travels all through like different subcultures and niches. And it's not just a like dissident Twitter thing. It might also be, you know, on TikTok or like in normie Twitter or like, you know, more normie media um, outlets. So, I mean, there's, there's, uh, it, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a confusing landscape. Hmm. Why do you think that TikTok is now the really popular platform for young people and generally millennials are not to be found on tiktok if they're there they're very confused i don't think that's true i think it's popular with all age groups yeah i see people of all ages on tiktok all the time i guess that tiktok has a a slightly different skill set to be good at it um from say twitter a lot of writers on twitter because obviously writing lends itself to pithy tweets yes (laughs) although there's a lot of writers on um TikTok too, like I would recommend, and I'm not following my own advice because I just, I don't like being on video very much, but um, I would recommend all journalists um, to, to get on TikTok. I think it's, you know, like it's pretty, it's pretty vital. Um, it's, I mean, it's easy to use. It, 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 people can be really vicious on TikTok, but it, for me at least, there's something that feels like less scary about it. Like my, my distaste for video is like unrelated to the platform. That's just like native to my own <laughs> life experience. But there's something about it. And I think it's because the way you interact is somehow like more siloed, right? Like on Twitter, like I'm, I'm responding to people and I'm seeing people in a way that I'm not on TikTok, right? Like it, I don't I don't know if I'm explain if I can explain it well, but it's like like when I'm making a video, I'm like it's I'm talking to myself in a way that isn't true on Twitter. Like I'm always talking to an audience on Twitter. And often the convention on TikTok is for people to be doing other things. It's rare for people to just hold the camera and speak to it. Um, they tend right. to be doing things like putting on makeup is a classic, or driving, cooking, 
or doing yeah. some sort of almost like side by side activity. You know, the the, the classic advice from uh, advice columnists like yourself is to have difficult conversations with someone while you're doing a kind of shoulder to shoulder activity, like driving. And people seem to use people seem to produce TikToks in exactly those environments. Maybe it's to do with the fact that you just feel less awkward if you're not actually looking at the camera. It's quite a hard thing to get used to. Or I guess it's just the sort of funny conventions that build up in a any kind of online culture. I mean, it really, um, really like worms its way into your life. Um, you know, like it's it's sort of like always there with you. It's what's what's really interesting is like TikTok really steals your attention in a way that Twitter doesn't. Right? Like you could have a conversation with someone who's tweeting. Mm. You can't really have a conversation with someone who's looking at TikToks. But somehow, like, the the actual content you create feels like it's sort of, like, unobtrusive. And it's, you know, it's like, well, I would have been putting on makeup to go out anyway, right? <laughs> um, but it, it actually, like, in, in reality, it, it dom- you know, it's, once once you're in, you're in, the, <laughs> you're in that vortex and it, nothing's, nothing's penetrating it. One of the things I really hate about TikTok, which also makes me feel quite old, is that when you turn it, when you open the app, it immediately makes sound. And I've, oh, yeah. and which is not true, obviously, for Twitter, but all, it also, or any other social media platform. Um, I guess, though, that younger people do tend to be more tolerant of that. Like they'll play music out loud on public transport more often than older people will. And, and just, I mean, for me, I'm mortified if my phone makes sound in public. But I guess that's a social convention that's dying. Yeah, I mean, you know, and they always have headphones in. I, uh, like, I always have headphones in. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, that's uh, I've, I've actually started doing this like really like deranged thing of like turning my uh, my phone, like turning the volume all the way down. I'm watching TikToks of the sound. But they've got and the I'm, captions. Like, yeah, which are always wrong, you know, <laughs> but it's like something like now I'm, I'm at the point of like being addicted to it where it's like. I'm not even paying attention. I'm just sort of like passively like scrolling. <laughs> because it's just so, the algorithm is so good. The caption um, technology is actually pretty good as well. Like it's surprisingly good, yeah. even though it makes errors and also picks up all of your, you know. Um, your little sounds. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, like the technology is pretty amazing. And the fact that it just feeds you exactly what you want um, is of course why the Chinese government is not permitting its own young people access to the hard stuff. There's that there's that alternative TikTok site, which is much more um, much more suitable for children and much less addictive, which Chinese children are actually allowed access to. I wouldn't be surprised if we found out it was like an op all along. <laughs> and there's so many weird things. I, I mean, I I, I embrace it. <laughs> Um, I think yeah. you know what? I think that's a beautiful note to end. <laughs> and then we're at about time. Catherine, where can people find you on uh, the internet, that awful place? You could find me at defaultfriend.substack.com. Um, and all the many articles I write for other outlets are always going up there. So Awesome. And, you, the, and you also have your advice column up there as well, right? I do. Fantastic. And uh, you're on Twitter, you're on TikTok. People can find you in all the usual places. Uh, well, not not really. I'm, I'm, I'm private on TikTok and I've, who knows if I'll be back on Twitter by the time this airs. We'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, just suspense. Catherine, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me.